Welcome back to the Better Way podcast brought to you by RNG Insights Lab. This is a curiosity podcast where we ask, there has to be a better way, right? There just has to be. I'm Zach Kosalia, the co-founder of RNG Insights Lab, and I'm joined, as always, by the one and only Hui Chen. Hi, Hui. Hi, Zach. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited for today's discussion. We are joined today by Antoine Ferrer, who is the global head of behavioral and data science in the ethics, risks, and compliance department at Novartis. Antoine, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Good to be here with you guys. We are happy to have you. And I think that we want to start by just getting to know you a little bit better. And we asked this of pretty much all of our guests and we'll ask it of you. Who is Antoine? I'm a behavioral scientist and I've been working about these for four years now in that department you mentioned. I guess my, my background originally is uh, I've been done just a master in, uh, in management, so business school. And I did sort of, you know, 10 years of a consulting, you know, pretending I was doing strategy, but doing mostly technology implementation, which is quite, quite common in consulting. Um, and, you know, back office, uh, offshoring, nearshoring, um, you know, optimization. And after 10 years uh, of that, um, then I turned, I took a turn and um, went into behavioral science, did a master at the London School of Economics, and then uh, did a bit of a pivot in my career and ended up in this uh, marvelous position that I have in, in the Baltics and able to do all the great things that I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about. But that's just on the professional side. Importantly, I'm also a husband. Uh, I guess, like I say, father of three, husband of one. Um, and uh, I'm French. Uh, um, I work in Switzerland, but I live across the border in France. So that's uh, where I am. Terrific. I thought it was really interesting when we look at your title and we look at the group that you're a part of, we've got three words. We've got ethics, risk, and compliance. Talk to us about the intentionality behind that name for the group and really how you think of the difference between ethics, risk, and compliance, which are words that sometimes in our world get bundled together and kind of treated as one and the same. I'll give you my my interpretation and what I think that is and what I think is important. So, you know, basically the function came about a couple of years ago from uh, an extension of what I believe was the integrity and compliance, right, within a legal team. And, and basically the function and the three names uh, do represent a bit of a large or extended scope of a what could be a traditional compliance function. Um, so the uh, let's start with the compliance this is you know you know about that so this is the traditional compliance and the managing or uh, key risk and and you know uh, public perception and regulatory risks um and um the risk one represents the fact that uh, we're doing more than just managing the uh, typical uh, compliance risk for pharma organization and you can think about transparency you can think about transfer of values and other things um, and the risk word represents the fact that the function is also responsible for managing the entire risks management framework for the Vatis. And the function is not accountable for all those risks, but we're accountable for managing that framework about how do we define, measure, manage, and mitigate those risks. So that's the risk part. And the ethics is really representing the, the direction from the function in the last few years that, uh, and maybe as to why I'm here today, um, a realization that we have to go beyond compliance uh, 
because you know within the word itself there's this notion of complying with something uh, complying with some external requirement that is imposed on us and i think the ethics probably capture this and i don't know if that would apply to a large organization such as novartis but i, I may say this intrinsic motivation from the company to do what's right uh, irrelevant of what is uh, we have to comply to uh, if that makes sense that makes so much sense, Antoine. I, you know, I, I'm smiling as you're saying that because we, you know, so often hear ethics and compliance used as interchangeable words with each other, and 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 I've always sort of tried to emphasize that extrinsic versus intrinsic orientation of the two. Compliance is all about what you're required to do. It's about somebody else's expectations of you, whereas ethics is about what you believe and what your values are, what you think is right. Um, I'm curious to what extent do you talk about those differences with the employees in the company? Whether we do that explicitly or also implicitly, given some of the choice that we've made in the function, we certainly, um, you know, uh, reflect and, 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 and illustrate on that, on that distinction. For example, you know, the project that joined the uh, Vartis on was the launch of the new code of ethics, right? Um, of course, they never called called to comply, but they could be called code of conduct. And so that is in itself is a signal that, yeah, what we're talking about here is more than just um, compliance with regulation. That, that document and that positioning is important because it clarifies what is expected of people within the Vartis and it also sends a strong signal. So within that document, um, we also take the point of view of the different commitments we made and, and not commitments to anybody else than ourselves, really. So I think that also reflects that, you know, um, self-motivated desire to be ethical, right? Um, yes, we have to be compliant, of course, but I think as a, as a, as a, as a pharma organization uh, or, or as a company working in the pharmaceutical industry or... Um, or margin of error is incredibly thin, right? Um, and, and we also have to recognize that. And so, of course, that is not a reason to want to be ethical. And, and sometimes we always want to justify why you need to be ethical, right? It's good for business, it's sustainable. And I always try to refrain from that to say, no, there's no reason beyond the fact that it's great, <laughs> that it's the right thing to do. Yeah, there might be a business case for ethics, but one doesn't need one as well, right? And it can be sometimes self-defeating as well to turn everything into uh, sustainable performance or things like this. I want to talk a little bit more about multidisciplinary teams. That's been one of the better ways that we've talked about on this podcast before. Yeah. And it's very much the promise of this lab that Hui and I are a part of here at RNG Insights Lab. Um, and by multidisciplinary teams, for us, it's about having data scientists, it's about beha having behavioral scientists, and it's about that for you too. So yeah. tell us about your team and what may seem to some, certainly not to us, but to some like a surprise to have a behavioral yeah. scientist and data scientists within an ethics and compliance function. I think it is indeed a, a surprise, certainly outside of the organization, to you know, other people and say, what do you do? Well, I work in uh, ethics, risk, and compliance. Oh, great. What do you do there? Are you a lawyer? Well, I do social science and behavioral science. And then you're going to see something in their eyes. They go like, oh, great. <laughs> or they go like, what? It, it is quite surprising. And also, to some extent, 
to people within the organization as well. Right? I guess you've done both the question and the answer here is, is multidisciplinary. And, and that's how when I started and even to this day, how we try to frame the value we bring to ethics, risk and compliance. And then, you know, coming back to the code of ethics, right? The good way of ex explaining as to why this makes sense is to recognize that we're, uh, if I use that phrasing in, in, in the business of changing behaviors, um, I mean, that's what business is about. That's what corporations is about. That's what functions is about. We want to make sure that people behave in certain ways and whatever we do, whatever system we put, whatever policy we have, we want to make sure that in all case, people do the right thing, whatever and however we define that. So it's about people doing things, right? It's about behaviors, right? Infinite, right? Through different mechanism. And so once you recognize that and you say, well, if we're the business of driving certain behaviors, then should we look to the science of that? It sounds like a good idea, right? Then you say, yeah, sure. What, what kind of stuff drives behaviors? Well, there's many things. Uh, there is the code of ethics. There is the clarity of expectation. There is you know, clarity about what people ought to do and the signaling that comes with it and what we stand for and our values and leading by example. And you know, that's, that's really important, right? If it's not there, it's not gonna work. So, but this is also about all the things there, which is, you know, what's, what's going on immediately around, around us at the time we do our behaviors? What's our emotional state? What's, what are the cues we take from what other people do around us that might also influence our behaviors? And, and so the social science and behavioral science is trying to look at it all together and say, okay, what do we know about the drivers and derailers of stuff and behaviors? And can we go about it systematically? And, and those two things work together. Tell us a little bit more about your team. Yeah. What, what skill sets are there? Because uh, yeah. I think that folks should hear that because there's definitely interest and momentum, I think, around data yeah. science and behavioral science, but you need data scientists and behavioral scientists to actually do it. So tell us about the skill sets that yeah. you've actually built internally. There's plenty of interest. And if I would, if I would be a, um, somebody with a sense of humor, I would say that uh, uh, indeed, I think in the... Um, there is probably a lot of opportunities. I think how many times I'm approached by different companies wanting to know what we're doing. So there is some interest there. So we started with uh, just just myself as a behavioral scientist, uh, really just a contractor for a couple of months, like help us out with the code of ethics. We heard about system one, system two. We heard about all the biases. It sounds really fascinating. We got an intuition that this might work, but we don't really have an idea of how we could, you know, transfer this bunch of knowledge really interesting into you know, the whole machinery of stuff that we've been doing, right? So that was my first kind of goal, to try to translate that into something that a an organization and a compliance department can do. Uh, but then about two years ago, we decided to combine what was the reporting and analytics team with the, the behavioral science team. And that's why we do group together behavioral, the behavioral and data science, because essentially that is about the same thing. In my team, we've got a behavioral scientist, so to qualify a bit more the natural behavioral scientists that we have, so that is people having done, you know, master in not just psychology, but behavioral science. It is the same and not the same. It depends, you know, of what you've been doing in psychology, right? Um, and, uh, you know, let's say some of them comes with a background of having worked in areas, either companies, areas that are adjacent to the problem we're trying to solve, you know, audits you know, in, in big four consultancy or maybe working in uh, other consultancy on the pharma space. So, you know, I think a bit of an understanding of uh, or a risk lens, whether that's a compliance risk or other kind of risk or the organization or regulatory perspective. And, and then we also have somebody who's more of a, uh, like all research or lead researcher. He, she, she's a PhD uh, in uh, 
behavioral economics slash neuroscience. She'd be great. And she also has some experience with, uh, you know, being in think tank in large organizations. So that's on the behavioral science side. And to finish, hopefully rather quickly on the data science side, then we've got a different set of skills. We've got um, a couple of uh, real data scientists uh, slash data engineers. So let's grab the data. Let's write some Python code. Let's use algorithm off your shelves and adjust them. Let's do some machine learning and outliers and all that stuff to, to have the most impact for the, for the bang for the buck, really. We, we work in tandem with IT, but we also have a bit of capacity as a sort of self-service to develop our own um, um, solution data product or make make our own adjustment to certain design problem of certain systems. Or So we have a full-time uh, designer. She's a data designer, a bit also very hard skill to find because it's, you know, it's actual design, graphic design, right? UI, web design, but also a good sense of data and also a good sense of psychology. So really rare kind of niche skill there. And she's amazing. Um, and so she's helping us with all kind of sort of design problems, either data or non-data problems. And then we also have a, a few uh, contractors that are doing more development, like web development and stuff. So we can build our data product. Anton, this was so interesting to hear about your team, which is the kind of team that most organizations would probably say they don't have the luxury of building. And having this team, how does the team work with the rest of the first ethics and compliance organization? And how does it work with the rest of the company? Compliance in itself is a bit of a meta team because, you know, we don't own the business process. We're trying to influence them for the better. And we ourselves don't own the compliance process. We're trying to, you know, make sure we influence that in a way that is their better design in one side. That's for the work with the ERC, but also making sure that we generate, get the data and, and, and able to report good insight back to them. And so all work depends on. Uh, the willingness and ability for the rest of the people to work with us, right? And so that's really important for us to respect that, the fact that we have to engage with them. The, the beauty and the challenge of behavioral science in, in general, but even within ethics, risk, and compliance, that you have to be choiceful in terms of what you do because there's so many things, right, in terms of what you can start looking at. And so what we do and what we choose to do is a bit of a mixed bag of, as, as it is in reality, of what was the starting point which was the code of ethics and the work on ethical culture. What are the opportunities? Where can we have a quick impact? How do we scale up, right? So that's how we do it. But we walk across, uh, you know, from uh, compliance management, you know, the anti-bribery policy or inappropriate influence policy to the conflict of interest, to third-party risk management, or, um, um, you know, speak up, the speak up office, you know, the, the grievance mechanism that we have. Uh, help them redesign their new process and system, make sure that, you know, it generates the right data and encourage people to share, to share what they think. And, and you can think about also maybe more local um, uh, country or regional team that we work with trying to help them with their cultural plan in terms of ethical culture. So it's really a, a broad set of different uh, 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 teams that we work with. And then for the rest of the organization, we had a recognition very early that, first of all, we don't own ethics. Right? We you know, doesn't work like this. Everybody does. But if there's one function in particular in corporation that gets to define a little bit what it feels to be part of a company, it's the human resources function. Right? So they don't own culture neither, but they are really influencing the way work is being perceived as well, right? So we recognize that very early and say, okay, we're going to work with those guys uh, on ethics because that's how we're going to work, right? Let's look at the performance management system and recognition and reward. Let's look at what kind of behavior does it drive? How do we frame things in a, in a good way? Let's look at leadership development, at hiring. How do we hire for integrity? What does it mean? Is it about asking a couple of questions about ethics or is it about something else? So 
this is where you know we have the most interaction i think because this is where we can have the most impact in general antoine let's um dive a little bit deeper into a topic where i know you've done a lot of work and that is psychological safety so last year you co-authored an article about psychological safety with others from Novartis, but also with Amy Edmondson from Harvard Business School. Tell us about your research in this area. Probably started the story talking about the ethics survey where, you know, basically there we send that to 150,000 people across the world in Novartis internal and long-term contractors in 15 languages. So we wanted to measure what's the real level of psychological safety across teams in Novartis. Uh, because we didn't have any robust measure, measure existing, right? So we reached out to, to Amy Edmondson. We actually used the, or tweaked a little bit the six-point scale that she came up with for measuring psychological safety. We changed one of the items to make it more relevant, or because she felt maybe it's due a bit of an update, this one doesn't make really sense anyway. So we had the chance to, to do that. Um, but then we had massive amount of data about psychological safety across 50 countries, across different demographics, functions in a way that is, you know, truly truly interesting for the first year of the survey and same for the subsequent years, we had about 30,000 complete answers. So that's, that's a lot of data point about psychological safety. We did some stats and we realized that psychological safety is, is beautifully associated. Uh, and I say beautifully because everything was matching almost in a perfect story, right? It is really associated in, in a way you would expect to the more psychologically safety there is in a team, the more likely member of that team are to use formal channel to report issues and the less likely psychological safety there is in a team the more likely they are to talk about it in a way that is not useful to novartis which is talk to family and friends or keep that for themselves right and it was really just like the bars were aligning right and then we ran some regression analysis and we saw that that psychological safety within the context of the survey was predicting quote unquote <laughs> uh the kind of reported behaviors so that was the insight that we, we kind of found and then and that's really largely, in a way, what we talked about with Amy Edmondson on, on the MIT article. Typically, if you're running a compliance department, and I'm sure many of compliance leaders will be listening to this podcast, and what you have, you have your pickup mechanism, your grievance mechanism, you have this line, hotline, people can text, chat, and, and, you, and then you think about, okay, how do we design this? How do we do the policy? But then what we found from about this in reality, and it may not be a bad thing, I think it's by design, is... There's only a very slim minority of people who actually get to report what they feel might not be super ethical to the speaker bodies. Uh, because maybe that unethical behavior doesn't raise a threshold where they feel they need to involve that. And there's different ways they report things. And I guess what's the first thing that people do when they think they see something that they feel is unethical, the first thing they do, 80% of them, they choose to talk to their managers. So what does it say about your role in compliance? If you want to drive ethical behavior, if you want people to speak up, where do you put your attention? more tweaking about your speak-up office or making sure that managers are equipped to deal with ethical problems. Where do you get the most bang for the buck? Both are important, but you cannot neglect the role of, of managers as well. So that was a bit of the message as well, coming from the data that the managers are the first port of call for any potential behavior that is seemed unethical. It needs to be addressed. I do want to mention though, because we published a month ago, a follow-up article on the MIT not with Amy Edmondson this time, but coming from this, this research, because then we found that psychological safety is really important, right? But then the question is, great, what do we do? Do we organize webinars on psychological safety? <laughs> do we have a culture journey on psychological safety? Do we train people on psychological safety? Do we have a new psychological safety policy, maybe? You know, what's the... What's the... What, what is the answer? What do we do? 
we know that psychological safety is important, but how do we do to increase that? There was no any solid randomized control trial experiment being done. So that's what we did with one uh, division of Novartis Sandoz, and we did a very large randomized controlled trial, uh, which is nothing more than you know segregating managers and teams in different sort of experiment condition. We call that a pilot as well, if it's less scary. So a manager received some kind of instruction in terms of how to conduct their next one-to-one. -one. Some others, different set of instructions. And the third group was the control group, a bit very much like the placebo group you have in pharma for clinical trials. They just received an email saying there's a study going on, right? And then we try to have the manager frame conversation with their team members differently. And then we found that has a big effect on psychological safety for the cost was just an email. But I think the most interesting thing is the following. First of all, we never talked about psychological safety in the experiment. So you can increase psychological safety without talking about that. You can increase ethics without talking about ethics. You can maximize integrity without having to talk about integrity. Remember, not, not that I say that it's not important, it is, but you can also do that without, because that seems to be the one-on-one -on -one change management strategy for any corporation. We got something, we're gonna talk about that, and we're gonna educate people into that, that thing, right? It doesn't work for that. You want people to experience it. Antoine, what, what I so love about this is your willingness to experiment. I mean, this is something that we so encourage people to do. And this is a situation where you say, we don't, we're not finding a lot of research on how this is done. So let's start with a little experiment. And I so, so much appreciate that effect, but I, I wanna take this a little bit further about the importance of psycho, psychological safety. So, you, you, you know, we keep saying it's important, it's important. Do you have any insights about its importance beyond speak up? So in my imagination, when you have psychological safety, it ought to contribute to the performance of the team. So it's not just about speaking up when you see a problem. It's about speaking up when you have an idea, right? So this may have nothing to do with misconduct, nothing to do with ethics. It's just, you know, I'm seeing the way we're doing things. I don't think it's terribly efficient. I have this new idea about how we do this, you know, do our job differently and we can do it more efficiently. We can do it with greater impact, whatever the new idea is. Psychological safety, at least in, in my assumption, should also help with that. So psychological safety should contribute to a, at least a healthy team discussion, a healthy team brainstorming of new ideas, willingness to receive new ideas, which then in turn should have some kind of impact, positive impact on performance. Do you have any insights on the importance and contribution of psychological safety in this you know, space beyond just speak up? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm really happy you brought that up because that's one of the things that we've reflected on as well. Yes, uh, I think you're right. Uh, it matters for more than just um, misconduct and speaking about problems. And that's why it is such the perfect segue, the perfect vehicle, more than segue, for running an experiment or a pilot or a trial, whatever you want to call that, in a way that is less scary for your organization across functions between ethics, risk, and compliance, and, and HR, and even business unit. We know psychological safety is great for many things. We know it is great for performance. And so in the pre and post survey, we also measured different desirable things that has nothing to do with ethics. And they have things to do with ethics, but not on the face of it, right? How much do I trust my manager? Um, what's my sense of progress in the organization? And those other factors were also improved alongside psychological safety. 
you know, the, 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 the trap we'll fall into is to think about, you know, the whole like structure, we've got functions. So we work with concepts that are linked to a function. That's not how the human brain works. You don't go into work thinking you walk into a function, you're there, you meet people, you do things, it's all messy, it's all related, right? So it, so, so it is not just about um, ethics. And I think that's why it's, it's very important to work on that. And I think I'll just add beyond that, I, I have to, again, think there's a correlation between psychological safety and how valued an employee feels in an organization. That ability, that safety, it gives you that sense that you're being listened to, that your contributions matter. And that in turn has to translate into some kind of sense of you know, commitment to the organization, the sense of belonging, the sense of believing that you're a valued member of, of your team. So we'd love to see more people experiment and come up with empirical answers uh, to yeah. some of those. What I think is important to clarify as well, and you've alluded to that in, in what you've just said, is you know, sometimes we think about Again, in large organizations, whether that's ethics, risk compliance, or human resources, or any other functions, we think about change. We gotta, okay, we gotta give people information. We gotta, we gotta tell them they have to do something, right? So we're gonna tell them they have to speak up. But I think companies, they, companies don't have a speaker problem; they have a listener problem, because certainly if people are worth communicating to, they're also worth listening to, right? And and I think we've been as organization with the you know, finger on the talk button of the walkie-talkie for very long, and it's time we release it and try to listen to what's on the other side. And, and we know that as well from the survey, because the second year of the survey, we went further about asking, did you see something unethical in the last six months? What was it? How did you react? Did you speak to somebody? But also asking, oh, you spoke to your manager. Great. What was the reaction? How did it make you feel? Do you think the problem was addressed? This, again, I think ethics is doing the hard thing when this is the right thing to do. And so this is about listening as much as it is about speaking. Maybe we should call that a speak, listening your problem rather than a speaker problem. You know, I, I have to say, my as you're talking, you could see my head was nodding so vehemently that it's probably going to roll off my shoulders. I, I cannot tell you how much I agree with that because I have been saying that listening is one of the least utilized tool um, in the compliance and ethics toolkit. And in some of the toolkits, it doesn't even exist. And as a, as a parallel to speak up, we need to have listen up. I have one more topic before we get to our fun little questionnaire and get to know you a little bit better, Antoine. Uh, and that's to come back to the uh, code of ethics and specifically the decision-making framework that you've embedded within it. Hui and I were talking the other day in the context of putting something together for a client where uh, we were talking about culture of ethics and integrity. And Hui said to me, why don't we just frame this as smart decision-making? You all have actually created a framework to help your people make smarter decisions, to make more ethical decisions. So tell us about that. So yeah, when we, when we set out to look at a behavioral change strategy for the code of ethics, there's the visible part of ethics and the code of ethics the clarity of expectation, the signaling, that's really important, the walk the talk, the displaying the values, you know? And, and then there's the more invisible part as a way to put it, which is you know, the, what we influence in our direct environments, the other colleagues' behavior, the implicit or explicit goal settings, and, and all those other things that we know drive behavior. But within that visible part or very thoughtful part of ethics, there's this decision-making process that we're engaged to, that sometimes we recognize we're engaged to. There's this really, sometimes dilemmas that we feel, right? 
And so we wanted for that case to develop something to guide people that really recognize there's a dilemma they have to solve. And we know that's not going to be all the case. Most of the time you go with your day without thinking about what you're thinking. Otherwise, you know, it's going to be a bit problematic, right? Um, um, so, so you cannot solve that only with mindfulness. But sometimes, yeah, sometimes, you know, people think about what they think and they want to engage in, 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 in a bit of a, a tool to help them think through that. And so that's what we did. And we wanted to go beyond just the uh, typical uh, reflection question you have in a, in a code of conduct, you know, traditional code of conduct, which is what would you think, what would you do if it's on the front page of the newspaper and things like these. Very useful questions, but we wanted to take them and build something with them. So what we did is we looked at decision science, which is one of the three pillars in my team. We say we do behavioral science, decision science, and data science. And we say, okay, what's, what's the science of decision-making? What's, what's a good decision? And there's a science for that, as you know, right? So there's a you know, quality of the information, quality of the inference on that information, the quality of the alternatives being done, the call to action. There's many like steps and there's many frameworks by where you can assess that. And then we brought the ethic angle to say, okay, what are the different ways, the derailers, the cognitive and motivational biases that can come into play? Right? Group think, it can be overconfidence, uh, it can be confirmation bias. It could be many things that gets into the way of decision-making, but also that is relevant for decisions that have a, an element of morality within it, right? Which is how you could characterize ethical decision-making in a more like layman term. And so we build that series of sort of 15 questions, very simple, there's no AI, there's nothing really crazy. We just try to, what can we do if we have 15 questions? What, what are the best questions we can ask to get a sense of the quality of that ethical decision-making? And some of questions are very simple, um, and the simple ways of knowing whether or not somebody might be susceptible to certain biases. And again, it's quite crude, but it works like, you know, as part of that decision, do you have to say no to somebody you like? Or do you have to say yes to somebody you don't like? You know, whether you got some skin in the game there, can you reflect on that? Yeah. But also some of the ways we try to get to the biases, a bit less obvious. For example, we have all of all those 15 questions. You always have a choice to say, I'm sure, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, and then we lean to specific exercise for all those biases that we identify. And people really liked it. They, you go through that, go through the process and you realize, here's the kind of biases you might have on that. And here's a bunch of things you can do with your teams or yourselves to try to do something about it. So that's what we try to do. Uh, but there's much more we can do, of course. Um, um, and, and then we're trying to do still to improve upon and make sure it is being used with the limitation of that. It's only going to work when people think about using that. You've given us so much to talk about and think about, uh, so much so that I think we could do a whole nother session with you. And maybe we should do just that at some point. But for now, let's take a pause from the nitty gritty weeds of behavioral and data science. And let's just talk about Antoine. So we have a questionnaire that we ask all of our guests. And uh, it's inspired by Proust and Bernard Pivot and Vanity Fair. And for me, James Lipton. Oh, very French. From, from Inside. Th th thank you. There we go. <laughs> for me, it's about James Lipton from Inside the Actor Studio, though, which is not very French. Uh, so we've got a series of questions we're going to ask you. I'll ask you the first one. You actually have a choice of two questions. You can answer whichever one you want. The first question is, if you could wake up tomorrow having gained any quality or ability, what would it be? Or is there a quality about yourself that you're currently working to improve? And if so, what is it? I think one that I'm trying to improve is to refer to what I was uh, talking about earlier. So there's even a little segue there is how do I think less about what I'm thinking about, right? 
I'm very meta. I'm very self-conscious in good ways, right? And I think I'm just trying to find ways of experiencing more of the thing rather than thinking about the things that I'm experiencing, right? And um, that's that's you know something quite fundamental. So I'm just trying to look at myself and say, okay, well, how do how do I improve my experience by maybe thinking less about my experience and more enjoying that experience itself? So the question is a choice of either who is your favorite mentor or who do you wish to be mentored by? Um, I'll answer both questions. Here's the bonus. Uh, Here we go. So, but in, in both in a very bad way, though. So, <laughs> so no, I think look at the sign of being entirely cliche and uh, fanboy sounding from a behavioral science perspective. Uh, somebody I would love to meet for its two ladies, uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman is, is such a great mind. And, uh, you know, again, as I said, you know, not really big surprises for behavioral scientists, but I really admire the, um, not only the inside, but how he seemed to carry himself uh, through all the conversation that I see him having. So I think he'd be, be a good mentor, I'm sure, that I could learn not only on the behavioral science, but also uh, uh, hopefully what is a, a good human being doing. And then on, on the mentee side, then, without giving, without, without something specific, I think mentoring is really interesting and it's something I really like and actually I need to do more of uh, because every time I have conversation with either formally or informally, I think that's, that's always interesting and there's nothing more satisfying than just empowering people, giving them confidence, seeing them just just bloom there. I think that is extremely uh, something that I value very, very much. And of course, I try to do that with my team, but it's not the same relationship because you're encumbered by the hierarchical lines in a way that you're not with a mentee. So I like the process. That's great. All right. One last pick one of two. The first option is what's the best place where you've ever worked? Or what's the best job, paid or unpaid, that you've ever had? I'm afraid to give you the very boring but truthful answer. My current job is the best job I've ever had. I love it. Of course, days you know up and down, but in general, I'm super happy to do what I'm doing now. I feel very lucky as well. So I'm kind of waiting the moment somebody's going to pull the curtain or wake me up like, ah, what are you doing here? So um, I really try to enjoy the, the impact that we have. I'd say that there's a there's a theme, a trend there from our guests. That's a pretty a pretty common response, but it's great. It means we've got folks who really love what they're doing. So the next question is, what is your favorite thing to do? Oh, this is so hard. I've got I like so many things, and I'll tell you, my answer is I have no favorite things to do. Like when I was a kid, I had no passion for one thing, which meant I was so curious that I was almost jealous of people having that favorite, this favorite thing they do, or this favorite hobby. Because I was like, I, I don't know, I like many, many things. So in a meta way, my answer is doing different things is my favorite thing to do. I love that. Uh, let's see if you have a favorite for this question. What is your favorite place? I think the place that I like to be most is when I'm not working from home, and I go to the office and I come back in the evening, open the door of the house, I see the kids, I see my wife. It's a good place to be. I, I like to be back home. So I think in my the totality of my experience, it, it's good. You know, I, I like being there. <laughs> really nice. That's really nice. What makes you proud? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, my, my brain is primed to think about the kids now because I just thought about them. So <laughs> my answer would be, so of course there's, you know, the, um, I'm proud of my family, but, you know, maybe for more, um, a more narrow professional topic, I, I'm really happy about and proud about both the, the work from the team that is being done, but also the space that is being given to me and the team to do the work that we do from the, the sponsorship that we have. All right, we go from the somewhat deep to the very shallow, which is what email sign-off do you use most frequently? How do you end your emails? Uh, it can range all the way from best regards, which is very rare for me. Maybe you want to be super formal. Uh, sometimes thanks with an exclamation mark, right? It depends on the nature. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, though, I just say best, comma, to the line, Antoine. That's my sort of default. I'm a fan of thanks, sometimes with the exclamation point as well. Yeah, I like the exclamation point as well. It relieves the tension in a lot of emails, yes. you know? All right, next question. What trend in your field is most overrated? It's when we reduce the field, the behavioral science, and the learnings, not to its fundamental, which is the scientific approach for solving problem and embracing social science in general and, and trying things out. But when we, just, when we reduce that to simply a list of biases that exist, I think that just is not a sustainable thing. There's more than 200 of them and they all some of them are the same. So I sometimes question whether th- that is either overhyped or the right approach. And I think we always carry the risk if we go for the biases of the nudge that we're being seen as magician, you know, coming in there and then getting a hat, uh, getting a rabbit out of the hat. But we're, we're not magicians, we're scientists. And science is most of the time slow. And if people remember one thing from, from the behavioral science and the view I have in this podcast is behavioral science is not about transforming. It's about slow marginal gains that accumulate in a way that is reliable over time. That's what this is about. Yeah, I love that answer. I think that we find all the time that the sort of average observer has a very pop sci view of behavioral science, and it has, at times at least, become a little reductionist or um, yeah. uh, resulted in folks thinking that there's some sort of silver bullet. So I, uh, I don't think that, at least in the, the circles that we swim in, I don't think that that answer will make you any enemies. And finally, one last question. What word would you use to describe your day? Inspiring. That's amazing. I love that. We'll take that. That's a good word. That's a great word. To end your day on. Definitely. Well, Antoine, you've given us so uh, many wonderful, better ways from experimentation to your lifelong sense of curiosity and the value that that can bring in our work to the concept of listening up, not just speaking up and so much more. Thank you for your time and joining us on the Better Way podcast. Anything else you wanna say to our listeners before we cut out? It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Better Way podcast and exploring all of these better ways with us. For more information about this or anything else that's happening with RNG Insights Lab, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com slash RG Insights Lab. You can also subscribe to the series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And if you have thoughts about what we talked about today or the work that the lab does, or just have ideas for better ways we should explore, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you.
Thanks again for listening.